Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Rutherford, Dento Legal Consultant at Dental Protection. Welcome to Risk Matters, our latest series of podcasts created specifically for dental practitioners in Australia. As the name suggests, Risk Matters is about managing risk. In this podcast series, we will be taking your feedback and queries and putting them to leading industry experts, getting them to answer the difficult questions about managing risk and working safely. It's about what to do when managing risk matters most. In this edition, we will focus on a forensic odontology, what it is and what do your forensic colleagues need from us to assist them in identifying a body. So in a sense, it is mostly about us assisting their risk rather than ours. We will investigate the forensic odontology process, how it may affect our practice of dentistry and how we can assist them in the processes. Now, just an unusual preamble, some of the descriptions of body identification and mass disasters may not be suitable for younger ears. So if you are listening with children around, it might be advisable to listen at a later time. Our guest today is Associate Professor Alex Forrest. Alex graduated in dentistry from the University of Queensland in 1979 and practiced in Darwin and in the Flying Dental Service out of Cairns. Alex worked in both government and private practice before joining the University of Queensland where he lectured in both oral biology and anatomy. After continuing studies in anatomy education and forensic odontology, he became Associate Professor and Discipline Head of Forensic Science at Griffith University before moving to become Associate Professor and Clinical Lead in Oral Surgery at the University of Queensland School of Dentistry in 2018. Alex has now retired from academic life and is currently Director of Forensic Odontology at Queensland Health Forensic and Scientific Services. Alex's research interests include digital analysis and comparison of bite mark injuries and 3D digital technologies in human forensic identification. Alex has co-authored a book on forensic pathology and has co-authored chapters on paediatric forensic odontology, bite mark analysis and comparison, dental education and education in forensic science. He has published a number of scientific papers. For all this work to the dental community, Alex was made an officer in the Order of Australia in 2019 and is also the ADAQ immediate past president. So as you can see, a chronic underachiever. Now, Alex, thank you very much for joining us uh, uh, for this talk today. It's my great pleasure, Mike. Thank you for the invitation. And just to our colleagues listening, Alex and I were in the same year at dental school. And after we graduated some 10 years later, I ran into the dean of the dental school in an elevator, Professor Kenny Adkins. And he looked at me and he said, Rutherford, what year were you again? And I said, 1979. And he said, ah, yes, a particularly uninspiring year, as I recall, Uh, which (laughs) looking back, I think was a bit unkind for a very generous and kindly man, Um, particularly as our year has gone on to produce four ADAQ presidents, including Alex. And quite a few specialists and the only forensic odontologist I've ever met. So, um, Alex, what do you think? What, what, what's your definition of professional success? Well, that's a really interesting question, Mike. I think for general dentistry, it has to do with having a career where you can look back and say that you've done the right thing by patients, that you've earned patients' respect, that they're comfortable with you, that they're happy with your work, But if you're in a practice also that you've maintained happy staff and overall, when you reflect back on it, you have no regrets. To my mind, that's it. But then remembering that I did dentistry for dead people, (laughs) perhaps my criteria might be slightly different. (laughs) (laughs) So what's the feedback you get from your current page and patients? Surprisingly little, Mike. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Look, that's a very holistic um, uh, view, I think. We, I think it's a genuine idea of concern and professionalism when you see that your patients and their well-being and their, their happiness or their comfort with what you've done for them over your career, I, I think that's almost a definition of professionalism. 
Absolutely. It's all about the patient. Yeah. At the end of the day, your biggest responsibility is to your patient and subsequently to your staff. Yep. And I think that's great you mentioned the staff as well because so often um, we forget the staff and I still get surprised sometimes when I go to practices either as patient for a medical appointment or even for some dental where the doctor of whatever type introduces themselves and never introduces the dental assistant or the nurse who's actually assisting. Uh, and I always just think, you know, they're part of the whole picture. They're, they're part of the people who are looking after you. Uh, and I think that we, we need to give them the respect of at least introducing them to, um, to the patient because most patients expect that. that. Sometimes patients have got questions of the nurse or the dental assistant um, and they want to know how to address them. Absolutely. I think dental assistants in particular are hugely under-recognised. What they contribute to a practice cannot be written. Yeah, I, I think that's sort of coming into the fore now that um, there's a real shortage of staff. And I think um, uh, in some ways we have to reevaluate what we think about our staff, um, particularly as they're becoming more valuable in every sense to try and keep and, um, uh, and employ. Absolutely. The practice is the staff. Yeah. So at the end of 1979, we all wandered off to get jobs in private practice or we'll go off to England or, um, or government service. Um, and quite a few of our year end up going into specialties at the end. But I guess I'd like to know, how did you get into forensic odontology? Like I had no intention of specialising. Uh, largely because I really didn't have a good understanding of what the various specialties were. When you graduate, I don't think that you're equipped to really understand that. So I went out to have a good time and to do some dentistry and basically just enjoy life while I was doing it. Mm -hmm. uh, my downfall came because I'd been tutoring in anatomy when I was an undergrad, and that meant that I maintained an interest. So I went back and I did a bit more work in anatomy and then I started teaching formally in that area and in oral biology. Those two dots connected because oral biology includes pathology. Pathology includes disease. Dead people have usually passed away from some sort of a disease state. And the investigations were largely done by my mentor, Dr. Con Romaniuk. Uh, he was a magic gentleman, a fellow with two PhDs, no less. And he used to do the forensic odontology on the side. So it kind of seemed natural that I would hang on to those coattails. Mm -hmm. And in retrospect, when I look back now, I realised that Con had gone to enormous lengths not to teach me anything. And the reason for that was that the book had never been written. There was no formal coursework, uh, no text, as it were, of forensic odontology. And Con was, was, in fact, brilliant enough not to want to try and pass his bad habits on to me. Mm -hmm. So I observed, and it was with great shock in 1994 that I got the news that he'd actually, well, it was actually before that, it was, I think, 1992, he'd had an accident. Mm -hmm. uh, Con had been struck by a motorbike, he'd flown through the air, he's landed on his back, the back of his head, and he'd received uh, injuries to his occipital region, and he'd gone clinically blind. Mm -hmm. So in 1994, I got rung by Queensland Health saying, well, guess what? You're, you're the consultant. Okay. So here I was with virtually zero training and having had observed uh, somebody who did know what they were doing but wasn't willing to sort of make that gospel. And I talked to other people in the same position around the country and gradually we realised that we were all doing pretty much the same things. And as we consulted, we were iterating towards what has now become a formal body of knowledge. And that was happening in other countries as well. That was in 2012 when the Australian Dental Board was formed that forensic odontology was officially recognised at that stage in Australia as a specialty. So that long-winded description is how you fall into specialist practice in an area. Well, there you go. Thanks for that. And so is there any career pathway now? or is, like, I, mean, I guess when we graduated, there was a few specialties like orthodontics. Endo was just being formalised. Um, Crown and Bridge was around. But now they all have set pathways of a two-year master's or 
a fellowship. So does forensic odontology have that formality around it now? Or is it still an, an apprenticeship? Oh, God, no, no, it certainly does. Um, it's in a medical college, you mm-hmm. might be surprised to know. So we actually become fellows of the Royal College of Pathologists of Australasia okay. in the Faculty of Maxillofacial Pathology and following our uh, qualification uh, in brackets, you can write forensic odontology. Mm-hmm. So it's a five-year fellowship, the same as the Medicos. Uh, there is a Master's of Forensic Medicine that is mm-hmm. run by Monash. And if you do that and specialise in the forensic odontology stream, that forgives you the first part of the fellowship, which is a three-year one, and then you only have two remaining years to do. But you must have employment in a mortuary, a recognised mortuary accredited by the college as a training uh, facility okay. uh, and be mentored for that final two years before you sit your last exams. Yeah. And, and so how many are there in Australia, sort of rough figures, or do you know them all by first and middle names? Like, <laughs> I think we all know each other. Yeah. But uh, when we were grandfathered mm-hmm. as fellows uh there were 27 of us initially okay i checked the website the other day the college's website there are currently 14 of us who are registered right. and uh, and practicing mm-hmm. so there aren't too many of us that means that we would be insufficient to be able to do daily casework all of your casework is ideally done by two people mm-hmm. so that you have peer review of the process you've used Mm-hmm. And then you have peer confirmation and review of whatever it is that you've actually concluded or written. And then ideally that goes to a third person too. Okay. So as you can imagine, if there was only one of us, I would be doing an awful lot of consulting with myself mm-hmm. and probably taking pills to split my personality. To so you'd be talk, talking to yourself. At, yeah. Well, I do that as, as it stands, <laughs> but that's only because, uh, well, let, let's not go there. Um, at the end of the day, we have five other people working with us they're dentists with enormous experience in forensic odontology but their title is is dental officer bracket forensic mm-hmm. because the term forensic odontologist can only be used by a registered specialist so that's a protected title it's yeah. a protected yeah. title. that's fair enough yeah and i have to say if i passed away tomorrow there wouldn't be a ripple the people that i work with at the moment every single one of them um is as at least as qualified as I am and as capable as mm. I am. We You're a very generous team. man. I think you, you, oh, no, you, there's no the hubris there. Wonderful but... team. Yeah. Really yeah. yeah. And and did they wander into it out of interest or they're in the public service and the opportunity came up or a bit of a mixture? No, it's a mixture. Uh, Anna Nangia is an orthodontist with an interest, so mm-hmm. she has come. She sits with us for a session a week. Uh, Alistair Soon came from Melbourne, but we forgave him for that. And uh, he joined us because he really wanted to. So Mm -hmm. he's been working with us and he's now with the Air Force. Neil Evans was a gentleman who studied forensic science with me back at Griffith. Mm -hmm. The guy achieved a GPA of 7, 100% for every exam, university medal. Not much wiggle room there, is there? No, a lot, no. He said, what what should I do? And I said, well, for heaven's sake, don't go into forensic science. Join us in dentistry. So we did dentistry and he got a GPI, I believe, I think it was a mere 6.92, another university medal. And he has now um, combined his degrees and he's working with us. Mm -hmm. Brad Ross, a dentist from the army who has now defected and done medicine, Mm -hmm. but nonetheless still remains in touch with us. You know, this is the kind of quality of the people that we have. And Jane Kim, a general dentist who is currently specialising in forensic odontology. So you'd work very closely with your medical co- uh, colleagues or is there a little bit of a demarcation? You haven't got a union dispute over which part's yours? And No, we, we actually have the perfect relationship between medicos and dentists. The forensic pathologists are the people who perform the autopsies. If there is a suspected cause of death that is either dental or maybe related to a dental issue or if there's been an assault with some dental trauma, uh, we are right in there, mm-hmm. and uh, they consult with us extravagantly, I have to say. Mm-hmm. Um, wonderful. It's the best relationship, and, of course, it goes both ways. So, yeah, we're, we're both personal and professional uh, colleagues of our, uh, of our pathologists. Okay. And, again, if that leads me into, you know, I, I think, for interest, just because I don't think many general dentists really have a, 
a working knowledge of what you actually do. So uh, what, what, what's a typical day if, if there is a typical day? Uh, a typical or you could day. describe a few if you like. Like, um, Sure. Yeah. Okay, well, a typical day, let, let's say it's a, it's a typical case. So forensic odontologist's bread and butter is identification, mm-hmm. giving back an identity to people who can't talk. Um, it's always about giving a voice back to those who can't speak. So for argument's sake, we receive an email from our coronial support unit police, and it will say, can you please perform a search for, and they'll give us a name, and they'll give us a date of birth, and they may give us an address. Mm-hmm. We've got access to ISO, the Information System for Oral Health, which logs all Queensland health appointments, so we can search that. Mm-hmm. What we can't easily do is to get x-rays, right. unfortunately, from Queensland Health, but we can request them, usually by means of a telephone call. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have access to the major radiology providers, so we can search their databases, because Queensland Health doesn't log APGs, but those guys do. Mm-hmm. So if we can find an image, we're laughing. Uh, we also love CT and CBCT, if we can get it. Uh, we will generally have the police ask the next of kin about a dentist that this person may have gone to. Mm-hmm. And if we get information on that, then we'll also contact the dentist. So we'll amass a stack of information. Uh, what we really want is images. Mm-hmm. So we are delighted if we can get PAs that show roots. We love our pigeons. Mm-hmm. Um, even more, we love CT data sets because okay. we can slice those to simulate X-rays. Right, right. Now, everything that comes into the mortuary is also CT scanned. Mm-hmm. And if we require a dental ID, we can get them to do a relatively high-resolution scan. And we'll send them any anti-mortem X-rays, the ones that we've got from the clinics or the dentists. Mm-hmm. And we'll say, that's what we've got. Try and slice the data to simulate that as closely as possible. Mm-hmm. So our gold standard is if we can get an image from a dentist, an image from the deceased. And by the way, we also take X-rays of the deceased mm-hmm. and we can superimpose them and get a perfect match. Right. So right. that's that's the gold standard. If yeah. we can't do that, then we'll compare one mm-hmm. side by side and we'll describe. So if there are any alterations between those, that's when the dental records become really important. Okay. So I want to talk to you later on about the dental records. We're eventually going to get around to what can we do to, to assist you. Oh, but, you're wonderful, Mike. Thank you. <laughs> but I, I guess there's that there must be criteria for how you can match, how much evidence you need. Surprisingly, so, no. Okay. There, there is no number of points of concordance that okay. you require. And that is crucial because if people haven't got any dental restorations Mm -hmm. uh, and there is frankly nothing in the dental record, um, we obviously don't have any comparison. But if we've got x-rays or, better still, a 3D scan, Mm -hmm. um, say someone's done either a a digital impression or they've got a CT data set, a CBCT, we can extract the 3D tooth surfaces from that. Then we right. can do a similar scan on the deceased and we can superimpose those surfaces in three dimensions. Okay. So if we were looking, we, we then generate a heat map of where, where they match and where they don't match. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you're talking about an intraoral impression, you're talking about something with a resolution of about 18 microns. Right. So right. if you take a dental arch at that resolution mm-hmm. and you match it with another one at the same resolution and you get a match that is almost perfect, Okay. Uh, you can't quantify that, but if you ask yourself, what's the chance of taking two arches of teeth at random and getting that level of perfection in yes, the match, yes. the answer becomes self-evident. If, you, if we're talking about patients without restorations, mm-hmm. chances are they wouldn't have had a CT or a CBCT, would they? That's Is always it? a possibility. Mm-hmm. And, of course, they may not necessarily have had a scan either. Mm-hmm. But orthodontists in particular are now doing a lot of this work, and those are the patients that we really love because that's an age group, the younger age group, which is less likely to have caries okay. than the older group, which mm-hmm. by the stage they get 40 or 50, generally will have some sort of dental intervention. Mm-hmm. So orthodontist records we love. Uh, prosthodontists mm-hmm. moving into digital in a big way, they're also very, very fruitful, but the fact that they are prosthodontists indicates that we're going to have some evidence of dental treatment. Something there. Yeah. yeah. But, but so, so if we're dealing with orthodontic records, 
So what happens if you're dealing with somebody who has died, say, 20 years after orthodontic treatment? Is that still workable or applicable? Or it, can, you, can you allow for ageing or for dental wear? wear? Look, the simple fact is that we haven't got an adequate body of research to support that. There are currently five papers Mm -hmm. that have been published, um, and two of those have looked at the effects of multiple scans. We're actually doing that research right now. I have a PhD student uh, down in in Adelaide, um, Harry Perkins, Mm -hmm. who's not only doing that study but is also doing twin studies to look at changes over age with twins Mm -hmm. and whether or not you can use those scans to differentiate between identical twins. So we're building that. One of the questions that we haven't resolved at this stage is if you haven't got a whole dental arch, let's say you've got a scan including, say, two molars and one premolar, to what extent does that change the equation? How does that change the probability? Mm -hmm. And if you've got interventions in there, uh, again, how do they affect that outcome? So if someone's looking for a PhD, we have got so many topics to offer. Mm-hmm. It's just mm-hmm. not funny. So this is formalising the, 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 the knowledge? Is this the evolution of, of forensic odontology? Is that, are you coming from a low base, I guess what I'm saying? Or is it... In this area, yes, we are. Okay. In other areas, we're not. Mm-hmm. But one of the issues is that forensic odontologists give evidence, mm-hmm. and everything that we do is evidence-based. At the moment, virtually everything that we do is opinion-based. Right. So it's expertise We'd like to move it beyond that. But once you start to apply things in a scientific way, they require validation to be accepted by the court. And okay. that means that you have to do studies in order to demonstrate the, the outcome, quantify it, and uh, by inference, I guess, also suggest that there may be an error rate, although we don't necessarily get to quantify that because many of the things we do are technique-sensitive. Mm-hmm. And uh, as we'll see if I mention bite marks later on, mm-hmm. uh, where everybody has a different technique, there's no yeah. way you can compare outcomes. Okay. So you're saying you, you, you work as an expert opinion or expert evidence. So that means you get done over by barristers in the court? Oh, in the courtroom, most definitely. But yeah. most often, uh, if it's a question of identity, mm-hmm. it's not controversial. Okay. Uh, we treat every case as a homicide case. Right. So Mr. X has been found locked in a house. Um, he's died presumably three weeks ago. Old pensioner, hasn't been seen by his neighbours, bit of a recluse. His wallet was found on and it contains cards, including a healthcare card, blah, blah, blah. There's not an awful lot of doubt about who that's going to be. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, a scientific basis for that identification is definitely required. Firstly, we have to be sure because mm-hmm. if we get it wrong, there are going to be two families that suffer. Yes. The family that gets the unidentified, incorrect body mm-hmm. and the other family that will never, ever get their identified loved one. Okay. But the other thing is that it's entirely possible that 15 years from now, somebody in jail is going to go, oh, yeah, I killed that guy. And okay. suddenly your routine case has now become a homicide. Okay. So you treat every case as though it's a homicide. So when you're examining a body, do you have that, I was going to say social, but I guess it's not, all those details of when they were found and what was on the body and you know, the conditions with the is, door locked and the wallet was there? Oh, yeah, all of that so is you, on the you know all that. record. Okay. Um, we can find that. Mm-hmm. We access a system called Ross Lab, which would be very familiar to anyone working in pathology. Mm-hmm. But it has a forensic branch as well, and all of those details are recorded there. But they're also recorded in the police forensic register. Okay. So if there's an investigation, all of that material is available. Mm-hmm. It's often irrelevant to us. I mean, I don't necessarily need to know how somebody's died or how long they've been dead in order to do an identification mm-hmm. because I'm comparing records of records, teeth from yes. a living person with records of teeth from a dead person. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. I mean, I was just going back that step, Um, dental protection will go to almost any lengths to stop one of our members being cross-examined by a barrister um, because it's it's a dreadful experience. But um, you've been through it many times. So um, I've been through some You're comfortable, yes. I've had enough experience to understand how court appearances work. Okay, so the familiarity. I know how to play the game. Mm -hmm. Um, Having said that, if there's nothing wooden to touch, 
uh, I could face my doom tomorrow. Mm-hmm. But um, generally, you know what your role is, you know what you're there to do. And that role is to give your evidence, give your opinion, yep. and get out. Right. Okay. So good, advi- good advice. <laughs> yes. You don't want to know about the rest of the case. You don't know where your evidence sits yeah. in the grand picture that the jury will hear. And, that, and that's the sort of advice we give when, um, when general debtors, when our members were asked to write a report you know, for a, for a legal case for, say, a traffic accident or something about that. We say stick to your area of knowledge, stick to what you know you know, Absolutely. and don't extrapolate and don't um, draw conclusions. So, Absolutely. Uh, and the barristers will try and make you do that. Mm-hmm. On a scale of 1 to 100, how likely do you feel it is? Mm-hmm. Don't. Just don't. Just don't. The moment you do that, you're digging a grave. Yeah. And that's yours. So just moving on to a, another area, I think, Alex, you've been involved in probably every mass fatality disaster that we're aware of in Australia. Um, and one particular one, the Boxing Day tsunami in Southeast Asia and predominantly in Thailand yes. in 2004, where there's an estimated 228,000 people died. Yeah. Um, how, how did you become involved in that and... And, and I guess not only you personally, but also Australia. Why, why were we involved in that? Australia was the lead agency in that. Okay. And partly that was because we'd had significant experience of our overseas disasters with the first Bali bombing in 2002, mm-hmm. remembering that the tsunami was on Boxing Day 2004. Mm-hmm. And it's not individual dentists that become involved. It's the Australian Federal Police. Mm-hmm. So they received a request from the Royal Thai Police, as I understand it. And uh, consequently, they sent a team over and it had dentists, very, um, anthropologists, pathologists to scope, to get a sense of just how big this was going to be. Mm-hmm. And um, it was on that basis then that the AFP, the Australian Federal Police, and police from many other countries got their act together. They They sourced dentists. Mm-hmm. Now, we are all well known to the Australian Federal Police because when we get deployed, we get deployed by them. Known to the police, as they, as they known say. Known to the police. <laughs> That's indeed. usually not in a good way. I'm afraid my phone number is in every police phone as I find out when they go to nightclubs and accidentally hit the first letter in the alphabet, which is uh. A, <laughs> but... In any case, um, yeah, so we get deployed by the Australian Federal Police. So Mm -hmm. Australia was the lead agency. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, The Thais, remembering that we are on their territory and we're in their jurisdiction, um, it was managed, coordinated by the Thais, and the Thais were the ones who determined whether or not an identification had been completed to the satisfaction of the identification board. Mm-hmm. But uh, we did an awful lot of the organising. So I didn't go immediately. Mm-hmm. I wasn't in the first tranche. Uh, I was teaching. Mm-hmm. And the first opportunity that I could actually get away was early April. So off I went. Uh, no real preconceived notions. Um, yeah, it was, it was the most amazing experience in my life, mm-hmm. I have to say. In what with what respect? I, I sorry, I'm, I was immediately thinking April's a long time from Boxing Day, um, so presumably you're dealing with quite decomposed bodies. Or we were dealing with very decomposed bodies mm-hmm. all the time. Okay, um, we were dealing with lots of humidity, very high temperatures. Mm-hmm. Um, it was pretty pretty terrifying. Uh, it took a long time for the bodies to be retrieved. We, we were dealing with about five and a half thousand bodies. Mm-hmm. So you've got utterly destroyed areas, whole stretches of the coastline that have just been completely decimated, buildings washed away, partially destroyed, boats lodged in houses in the roofs, all sorts of stuff, harbours full of remains as well as all sorts of debris. Mm-hmm. And very often, bodies were not easily found. So they may have become, for instance, jammed under some old stairs in a decrepit building. So bodies were being brought in for months and months and months afterwards. Mm -hmm. And for the Thais, who are mainly Buddhist, where's the best place to be if you're dead? The answer is in a temple. So we actually established some of our mortuaries inside Buddhist temples. Okay. So we would... um, 
take over a building with the, with the monks' connivance, of course. They were very happy about this. Mm-hmm. Um, we'd build a structure in it, which was mainly plywood. The dentist installed air conditioners. The pathologist, unfortunately, did not. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were the object of desire for many months. <laughs> um, and we would go there and ba- basically, initially, the roads were effectively non-existent. Mm-hmm. So there was no easy way of bringing in containers with freezing capacity. Mm-hmm. So the bodies were effectively just left to accumulate. There were no even, not even body bags in that kind of quantity. So the bodies initially were wrapped up in whatever plastic sheets people could get. Mm-hmm. But there was a lot of leakage. Mm-hmm. So 2004, bird flu was a thing. Monasteries are full of birds. They're full of chickens. Mm-hmm. And the chickens are pecking around in the body fluids of the deceased. Mm. And the the alarm was, is there going to be the potential for transfer of a bird virus to humans? To humans, So getting the body bags was a priority. Mm -hmm. And as they arrived, the bobs were packaged. And eventually, we were able to get freezer containers in there. Mm -hmm. There was a framework built in each one of those out of wood. Mm -hmm. And we could stack about 40 bodies into each of these containers. Mm -hmm. So by the time they were chilled, they were very, very well decomposed. Okay. And my enduring memory is walking into the mortuary area. And remember, I've been doing this for 30-odd years. Mm-hmm. So I'd seen it all, I'd smelled it all, I'd done it all. Um, walking in, and the smell barrier was unlike anything I'd ever experienced. Yeah. So I had Vicks Vapor rubs stuffed up my nose. I had Eugene all over the mask. I was wearing a space suit. Mm-hmm. And this was dangerous because when you're under the stress of this kind of examination, your concentration uh, gets... You, you think you're doing better than you are because you're high in adrenaline. Yes, but what yes. is actually happening is errors are starting to accumulate because you become high in adrenaline, but you've been going for a long time. And the, and the concentration yeah. breaks. So the urgency is to get you out, have morning tea, have a lunch, have a break. Mm-hmm. But you know if you walk out of that mortuary, you're going to get that smell barrier all over again. Yeah. So your urge is to stay in stay there in and there. not leave. Okay. And... Um, yeah, you, you, we really had to enforce this issue of take a break, mm-hmm. be a hero. Yeah. And, and was your role successful? I, I mean, maybe a strange choice of words, but I, I think was it a lessons learned, or it's oh, a yeah. we did a good job? Um, the, nothing is individual. Mm-hmm. So you've got literally hundreds of dentists over a period of eleven months working on this. Okay. So let's say, for argument's sake. I partner with a Kiwi dentist. We mm-hmm. go and we have a deceased person. We x-ray the bejesus out of it. We do the charting. We then swap roles. We recheck the charting. At the time, there was no digital stuff. So this is on paper. Mm-hmm. It then gets laminated and wiped and sterilized. Then it goes to a different area. In mm-hmm. fact, some 120-odd kilometers away in the middle of Phuket. It's mm-hmm. an, a telecommunications building which has been subverted to become an identification centre. So now you've got two completely different dentists, uh, often from very, very different cultural backgrounds and countries, who are now going to look at what you've written and they're going to enter it into a computer system. Okay. So none of us is responsible for seeing anything all the way through from one side to the other. So when you talk about success, what you're doing is you're talking about the success of the operation. Right, not the right. success of the individual. of the individual. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that 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 system. I mean, there, there's obviously reasons for it, but it seems to be there's inherent problems in that. Different cultures, different means of descriptions, different languages. Absolutely, um, it's just made for error. Well, Interpol has four official languages: mm-hmm. English, French, um, uh, Arabian, Saudi Arabian, okay. Arabic. And I can't, I think the other one is Spanish. I, I not Chinese? On that. No. Okay. No. Uh, to my understanding, Chinese is not a signatory to Interpol. Right. Okay. But that I believe sense. at the moment there are, I think it's 194 countries that are. Mm-hmm. So Interpol determines the standards and the protocols mm-hmm. that we operate by. And in theory, everything resolves to a particular language. So... Australia being the lead agency, language was English. Right. And one of right. the criteria, I think, for being deployed to the operation was your English was up to scratch. Right. And that was great because it meant no matter who you were talking to in whatever country, you always had a common language. Okay. So just segueing there for, say, you know, God forbid, but if this had happened in Australia, 
how would that have changed the approach and the outcomes of identification? Well, I guess we've had an issue a little bit like this in terms of the Victorian bushfires. Mm -hmm. So when you've got hundreds of people that are involved, it's very different from, say, if you have a multi-vehicle fatality with 14 people or something like that. Mm -hmm. You've got so many permutations and combinations and people are screaming for answers. So you want multiple dentists. If this was a domestic issue and there were no overseas people involved, so Mm -hmm. just Australians, as it were, then we would look at the size of the operation and say, okay, in Queensland, this is beyond us. Mm -hmm. In which case, we would then turn to the Australian Federal Police and say, right, okay, Uh, and it wouldn't be my decision, it would be uh, made by police. Mm -hmm. Uh, We need some help with this. And the AFP would then engage people from other state, other dentists, other anthropologists, other pathologists, other police, and they'd bring them up. And then whoever was the head of the unit, so for instance, if we were talking about the dental section in Queensland, then nominally I would be head of it, mm-hmm. I would then arrange the uh, the personnel deployments, look after the protocols and make sure that everything was done uh, according to those Interpol protocols. Right. Now, if we had... So, sorry, that even though it's in Australia, we still use Interpol Absolutely. In fact, protocols? we use Interpol protocols for our daily work as well. Okay. Yeah. It's very important that we remain experienced in using those mm-hmm. because there's no point trying to pick it up when you're in the middle of help. Right. But right. let's say we had an A380 come down mm-hmm. on, in Brisbane's airport. Then we've got people from however many nationalities you might like to think. Yeah. Uh, yeah it's quite likely that countries will want to send their own uh, people mm-hmm. to be part of it, not to identify their own people, but to be part of the operation, right. uh, assured how it's run, be able to contribute and, and indeed handle any language issues that might come from dental records from Italy or China or wherever. Mm-hmm. So that would be by negotiation from the governments of those countries with the Australian government for formal issues uh, of invitations. Right, right. So like when they had the Christchurch earthquake, we couldn't hop on a plane and go over there and say, hey, we're here, let's help. Yeah, It's yeah. a government-to-government invitation. Okay. And that then comes back to us through the AFP. And so but I presume with all of this, you've got very good relationships with other countries. Like, It's a community built on helping. It's Within forensic and ontology, absolutely. Yeah. We, we have a major WhatsApp group that involves so many people in so many countries, it's just crazy. Mm-hmm. And when we go to international conferences, we know all these people. Mm-hmm. It's fantastic. So if I need something from Kansas, mm-hmm. I'm going to know somebody that I can ask directly. I'm not going to have to search through all sorts of um, websites and colleagues to try and get there. Mm-hmm. It just happens. Right, right. So, yeah, we're we're an amazingly close community. And when we do get together at international conferences and things, we also know how to party. Oh, good on you, good on you. <laughs> if you get drunk with someone, it's very hard not then to have a good working relationship yes, with them. Yes, yes, yes. And vice versa. So, <laughs> so I, I guess when we're talking about domestic as in, in, in Australian, um, I think we're sort of working our way around to uh, the idea of this, is which is mitigating risk. And, and I guess in this case, what we're doing is mitigating risk for you. So um, if you've got what you know is a purely domestic situation where the people that, that have died are more than likely locals. What do you want from, from dentists? What do you want from general dentists? I, I guess what I'm getting to is how, what should we do? What should we have in our records? What should we have in our daily habits that would make your job easier? My Kylo awake at night dreaming that someone one day will ask me that question. Uh, <laughs> Here's your chance. <laughs> okay, dental records mm-hmm. are the obvious. And if police turn up mm-hmm. and ask for dental records, they're envisaging a piece of cardboard with some writing on it. Um, that's wonderful. That's mm-hmm. fine. Written dental records, written treatment notes are great. Mm-hmm. But a dental surgery is a noisy place. Mm-hmm. And quite often, if you're up to your eyeballs in blood and saliva, you're not going to be writing or typing. You're going to be dictating. And the fact is your DA is going to be recording things. Mm -hmm. So what that person is going to write down is what they thought they heard you say you thought you did or thought you saw. Right. And there is absolutely grounds for error there. 
So we've certainly had cases where an odontogram does not match what's written in the treatment notes. Mm-hmm. An upper six has been removed, a lower six has been crossed out, mm-hmm. uh, and we can't resolve that. So dental records that are written are important to us, but what we like to do is corroborate them with something that isn't a surrogate record. In other right. words, it's not it's something that derives straight from the patient where a written record doesn't. You're trying to get the and human error out. to talk about an image. Uh-huh. Okay. So an x-ray, a shadowgram, has no opinion built into it. It's simply yes. a record of what was there. Mm-hmm. Uh, similarly with a 3D impression, similarly with a CT scan. Right. Anything that's an image is not up for interpretation in terms of what was there and what wasn't as a rule. Mm-hmm. And they also record individual details. So for sake of argument, if you've got an amalgam in there, mm-hmm. the detail of that amalgam is going to be recorded. And if we can simulate the uh, angle of the central beam and the angle of the sensor against the tooth, we can we can simulate that. Now, that removes an awful, awful lot of opinion. Right. So if I'm dealing with dental records, I can say, look, there are six amalgams recorded there. There are six amalgams in the same teeth in the mouth. They're in the same surfaces. We'll pee. Mm-hmm. You know, the question then is, well, what's the probability of finding two people with that level of concordance at random? Yeah. Um, whereas if I've got an X-ray that records the detailed shape of an, a restoration, right, and I can take a, a similar X-ray, mm-hmm. this is where the superimposition comes in. If I can superimpose one over the other, or better still, superimpose one over the other and then subtract the top image. So yes. I'm using subtraction imaging. I can now show you what's different between the images, okay. and that can take us out of the realm of opinion mm-hmm. and demonstrate a fact that these derive from the same person. And that's the language that we would use. So what we really, really want together with the written dental records are Mm x-rays, CT, CBCT scans, MRI scans, um, any clinical photographs, because once again, they're an image. We would love them. Mm -hmm. And of course, any 3D data sets that you've got from, say, a 3D surface scan of teeth. All of those things will be wonderful. Beautiful. Sliding scale. Yeah, if we get written dental records, we'll send you a thank you note. If we get x-rays, somebody will come and hug you, give us a 3D data set. Well, we'll get down on our knees and we'll give you a bow. (laughs) (laughs) Well, just looping back, um, dental protection, we bang on about clinical records all the time because we have to deal with the records once something's gone wrong. And you can't change it after it's gone wrong. You've You've got to try and defend our member or or justify what they've done to uh, either a plaintiff lawyer or a court or to our regulators yep. based on what's there. So um, this is dear to our heart, but what was your, I'm going to put you on the spot here, what's your estimate of how often do the records, the odontogram and the clinical records and the radiographs all tally up? Most commonly. Okay, that's reassuring. Most commonly. Yeah. The issue is the detail in the written records. Mm -hmm. Firstly, are they handwritten? In which case, um, there is no handwriting 101. We'd love if they were. Secondly, are they using codes? Because all sorts of wonderful codes, many of them very idiosyncratic, exist out there. Mm -hmm. And we've got to try and translate them. So the more transparent and well-written your records are, the better. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just unambiguous, I think, is the word that would really gel with me. Yeah. Those things would be important. And, um, yeah, a fulsome record is infinitely better than the converse. And the converse, the worst I've ever experienced in my life, was a wonderful piece of cardboard on which only financial details had been written. Uh, And then they'd all been whited out. So oh, okay. effectively, all I got was a blank piece of paper with lines on it. It wasn't right. much of a record. Yeah. But you can see what I'm trying to say here. Yeah. Now, we've seen a few of those, which is they're actually yeah. a, a, a record of transaction rather than dentistry. Absolutely. Um, and, and I know what you mean about those abbreviations. of it's AOB, we know, is anterior open bite, but apparently in the UK, it is often alcohol on breath. Oh, um, maybe more in the medical sphere but uh, and, and hospital admissions, but that's a vastly different AOB uh, you know, if, if that appears on a record. Well, I can uh, think of another another way that acronym could be translated, but uh, let's not go there. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Look, I agree with you. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you can avoid acronyms, remember that you're writing these things as much for your own protection as you are for anything else. Mm -hmm. But please let me assure everyone of one important thing, Mm -hmm. regardless of how brilliant or how terrible your dental records are, forensic dentists are not going to turn around and report you to any regulator, any insurance agency or anyone else. The moment we did that, we'd never receive another record from anyone. Our interest is in using your records to help us do our job. It goes no further than that. Thank you very much for pointing that out, Alex. And I I hadn't thought to mention that, but that's very reassuring. I've actually got a colleague who I won't mention, but you know the person, um, who had his bite rings um, requested. And uh, as he said later on, when the police had told him that he'd been destroyed, there was something on there that he wasn't particularly proud of. Um, And I guess while he was always going to comply, he was just in the back of his mind just a little bit worried about who might eventually see those um, those X-rays and and pass comment or pass judgment. So that reassurance that they're there for you know for pathological purposes or, or identification purposes and and for nothing else, I think uh, our colleagues would be, be um, welcome that news. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And it doesn't really matter. If you've got a very bad x-ray and it ends up in front of the court, it's ending up in front of barristers. I mean, these guys don't know one end of an x-ray from another. They're not going to be critical and we do not judge. Mm -hmm. That's great. Now, um, sometimes we get phone calls and sometimes there's a whispered voice and it'll be there's a police officer at the front desk and they want the records of Mr. So-and-so, what should I do? Yes. And our standard advice is if you are sure they are police officer, you hand them over. Um, And I guess because the onus is going to be on the police, um, we're not there to judge whether the police are who they say they are if we reasonably believe they are. Um, But sometimes dentists have got uh, concerns about privacy or consent. Um, and our advice is that, you know, the police override that. So can you describe what happens, say, when the police comes and asks for the records of Mr X? Absolutely. So, so what happens from there? Let's just take that very simple scenario. So you've got a gentleman in a blue suit or a lady in a blue suit standing in front of a reception desk saying, please pass the records over. The protection that you have is to ask for a receipt for those mm-hmm. records. Mm-hmm. So if the police then give you a receipt, that's your legal protection. At the end of the day, there is no dispute. This is called a chain of custody. The mm-hmm. records have left you. You have a piece of paper that says that the police have taken those. They have the corresponding piece. They will bring them to the mortuary, at which time the mortuary will receive them. And again, receipts will be exchanged. Mm-hmm. So if there's any question at any point as to whether or not those records could have been tampered with en route, that chain of custody becomes important. We okay, know it went from that's X to Y yeah. and Y to Z. Right, right. Um, however, in terms of parting with records, you will rarely these days end up with a police person. You're more likely to get a phone call from one of us at Queensland Health. So it'll be me or one of my colleagues. Mm-hmm. And when we ring you, we'll identify ourselves which is terribly important. Now, when we talk to you, we are representing a coroner. Mm -hmm. So we're talking to you because at the coronial level, it is believed that Mr. or Mrs. or Ms. X has died. So at that point, you are advised by authority that this person who is believed to have been deceased Mm -hmm. requires identification. So Mm -hmm. you then, in good faith, hand over the records, there is no breach of the privacy regulations in any sense mm-hmm. because you are now responding to a request from a magistrate. Right. Uh, a magistrate is a coroner, is a magistrate. Okay. They are a judge. So it is effectively a court order saying, please pass these things on. Mm-hmm. Now, if it turns out that those records don't identify a deceased because they simply, there's simply not enough teeth left or enough remains or there's not enough dentistry or something like that well that's fine that's where the case ends it doesn't Mm -hmm. go any further but if the records do identify then we will ask for those records to be retained you can remove them from circulation 
Mm-hmm. But as I've previously said, you never know when today's routine ID is suddenly going to be a homicide in 30 years. Yeah. So you yeah. keep the records and simply hang on to them. The chances are you'll never, ever hear from us again. Okay. We make an attempt to try and let you know the outcome, mm-hmm. if we can, uh, of an identification case. Okay. That may not happen if it's a criminal case, but generally we will try and let you know, and we will ask for copies of the records. Mm-hmm. So if you've got written records, we'll ask you if you can to scan them. Mm-hmm. If all you've got is physical x-rays, we'll ask you to photograph them, even with a mobile phone, and we'll tell you how to do that. Okay. Um, and ask you to hang on to the originals. Right. So back in the olden days, you were asked, oh, give us the originals. Well, great. You know, it's a government department. What happens if somebody, um, not us, happens to be handling those and they go missing? Mm-hmm. We would far rather have copies with you keeping the originals. Right. And then right. if the originals are required for court, something that's known as the best evidence rule, where mm-hmm. they say, look, you know, we want the originals, we know where they are and okay. you can get them. Now, would you ever go back to the dental practitioner to ask questions like, you know, one of these x-rays doesn't match, you know, is this a misfiling or, you know, can you explain or would you ever do that? We do. Mm-hmm. It's rare. Mm-hmm. But there are times. Um, it's most often in terms of translating. Oh, okay. We believe yep. that line 16 says this. Is that is that correct? Right. But yes. uh, most commonly it would be about, say, referrals. Uh, you've referred somebody for an APG. Um, do you have the OPG or can you tell us who currently has it? Mm -hmm. You've Mm -hmm. referred off to the specialist. Um, Which specialist was it so that we can contact them to see if they have any further records, that sort of thing? Right, right. Yeah. Now, I haven't seen it for a long time, but uh, I guess quite a few years ago now, the Australian Dental Journal you you would or or our news uh, bulletin, sometimes you'd see a request from the police or the coroner where it says these are x-rays of a 40-year-old male who was found, you know, near the Brisbane River, say, or in the Brisbane River. Does anyone recognise it? And I, I always looked at those and thought, gee, that's a stab in the dark. But Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, does, did that ever work? Uh, Incredibly rarely. And yeah, we just okay. don't do it anymore. Okay. Uh, we've got an entire police service, service at our disposal and, you know, what they're really good at is investigation. So we would far rather they did the investigation than just put something out there, Mm -hmm. which conceivably uh, could come back to bite us as a breach of privacy regulations if if things went really, really bad. And they belong to somebody who self-identified and said, well, they're my records. What the hell are you doing publishing those? There is a danger. It's not not high, but it's potentially there. So these days we would ask the police to investigate. And the most common route to do that is to talk to the next of kin. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, that is not a forensic odontology duty. That's a right. police duty. Okay. So in those circumstances, police will be in touch, mm-hmm. generally with the deceased next of kin or whatever. Mm-hmm. But in terms of seeking dental records, mm-hmm. uh, it's taken me 30-odd years, but at this point, the police now defer to us and say, can you seek? The difference, the, the situation in which that won't happen involves what's called the National Victims and Missing Persons situation. It's a a database that you may have heard about in the news. It's been set up. It relies on primarily DNA and dental, and it's looking at long-term missing persons. So people have been missing for many, many years. And, in fact, we actually have some retained autopsy material at the mortuary, people that we've never been able to identify. Mm-hmm. So now they're going back, they're looking at these with DNA, but they're also looking at them with dental records. Okay. And dental records are the primary search system that we use. Mm-hmm. So the question arises when we've got records belonging to somebody who was found in 1971. So, well, we've got remains that were found in 1971. Yeah. And now we're going to go looking for dental records. And if by some fluke we're able to trace a dentist, mm-hmm. the concern, of course, is that people will dispose of records. Yes. Yes. And very often that's going to reach a blank. Yeah. So the issue of retention of dental records is something that is very, very dear to us. I wonder if it's going to change now that most things are digital. I mean, we, we on a fairly irregular, regular basis, have dental practitioners ring us and say, how, when can I destroy these records? You know, they're clogging up the hallway or they're, they're clogging up the, the laboratory. Um. And if it's models and 
films and written records, you can see the point. But um, the way data storage is going, it's almost limitless. So, you know, is there a need to, I mean, will we just keep on storing them indefinitely? Well, there has never been a law in this regard Mm -hmm. as such. There's been advice. Yes. So you may note that the Dental Board of Australia has now removed its specific requirement. Uh, I believe that the Australian Dental Association has done the same. I've certainly been asking them to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so the rule has always been uh, seven to ten years after they've reached the age of 25 or 21 or whatever the majority yes. is in your particular jurisdiction. Yes. Uh, we would love you to hang on to them forever. But okay. if you've got vast cabinets full of models, huge filing cabinets full of, of written records, mm-hmm. and you've got x-rays, dispose of them, but please keep the, keep the x-rays, the images. Okay. Yep. If you've got images, that's what we really want. If you haven't got images, then by all means, keep the written records. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, you know, it's, it's, it can mean the difference. Take the scenario where you've got, you know, some mum who's working, she's an eight-year-old daughter, daughter comes home every night, opens the door, lets herself in, watches TV till mum comes home, and mum turns up one night and the daughter's not there. Mm-hmm. So police turn up, they are looking for records, that's great, they get the dentist's name, you've got the records, you can supply them, we'll have a look, the chances are that we can thoroughly and unequivocally assure mum that yes, your daughter has been identified. This nightmare is never going to come back again if they right. find another body. So we can give them uh, some level of comfort. But if you're talking about long-term missing records, we may not be able to give that assurance. Yes. And what you've got then is a family that can never conclude their grieving process. So this is a huge toll on any person and any family. Um, for the record, we don't work for the police. Mm-hmm, we mm-hmm. don't really even work for the health department. We work for the relatives of the missing. We can't do anything for the dead, but we can do something for the living. So that's our primary target. Where you're concerned as patients are, yes. is, is the family and the friends. So it's a matter of trying to bring them comfort. Now, if you can maintain records, certainly digital ones, that is a huge benefit. We are working with missing persons at the moment to try and reduce the future need Mm. for these kinds of searches because what we're asking for is if somebody goes onto the long-term missing persons list after 90 days, let us know and we'll try and retrieve the dental records then. Now, that does raise some issues Mm -hmm. and it raises issues because we can't say that they are believed to be dead. Yes. However, we can still request those records through the police and through the coroner, so it's still a court order. And therefore, because you're complying with that, there are still no privacy regulations that get broken. Mm-hmm. And we then feed them into a national database so that if remains turn up in any state or territory, we can compare yes. and we're able to do that ID. And by doing it contemporaneously, it means that the chances are that we're not going to be looking for records that are 30 years old. Yeah. But there are always cases. If you drive from Brisbane to Cairns, statistically, you've probably driven past maybe a dozen bodies that are undiscovered. Okay. Um, if one of those is discovered, how long has it been there? Mm-hmm. Who knows? So it may well be that we're looking for very old dental records. Yes. In the digital age, there are issues. Uh, every five to ten years, there's a generational change in the way that we store things and the media that we use. Mm-hmm. We no longer use floppy disks. Many of us don't even use hard disks anymore. We now use SSDs. We have NAS systems. But periodically, you'll upgrade your equipment and the equipment that you use for taking images. X-rays may change. The file formats may change. So there are periods where you're going to have to look at upgrading your records to make sure they remain readable. And that will be the case always with digital. Um, And there are expenses involved. So there is going to be an expense in continuing to upgrade old records Mm-hmm. But when you look at the stakes for individuals and families, yes, um, and perhaps I have a vested point of view in saying this, but to my mind, it's worth it. It's part of the community service that we can give as dentists. Thank you very much for that, Alex. I mean, we, we didn't ever get round to bites, but <laughs> you know, um, your bite, bite analysis. But what you started off with, that idea of professionalism and success, 
you know, you brought that round in a loop where it's not just the patient. If your patient is no longer alive, you're talking about the comfort and the well-being of the family. And it's a very important thing. And I, I, I want to thank you very much. That was a wonderful talk. Um, so thanks for your time, Alex. Thank you so much. Colleagues, I hope you all enjoyed listening to this. We hope that this podcast was helpful to you and look forward to sharing more guidance with you in the future. If you like Dental Protection Podcasts and would like to hear more, please subscribe and leave a review. 